Welcome to episode 40 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at the magazine. And actually, we should be celebrating today because including our earlier incarnation as lockdown culture, this is in fact our 50th podcast together, Ed. Can you believe it? My God, that is longer <laughs> than most marriages. Charlotte, it's extraordinary. It also means we've probably had at least 100 guests, if not more. More. Some podcasts, we didn't have any guests, but we normally have two or three guests on every podcast. So that's just hundreds of cultural luminaries who have been through our podcast mill. <laughs> and also, it doesn't like seem like a year ago that we were celebrating last year's Hay Festival, dubbed by our Prime Minister rather brilliantly as Hay on Wi-Fi, although... Uh, our next guest may tell us where that originated, that rather brilliant remark. Uh, anyway, it's May now and it's coming back and it's not going to be just virtual this year. In fact, Country and Townhouse is Hayes' media partner. So we're going to be there as event number 98 with our great British brands panel that I'm chairing. But before that, we have some fabulous guests on today's podcast. And to start us off, as I gave you a little hint to give us an overview, we're lucky enough to have the chair of Hay Festival's Caroline Michelle with us. Good morning and thank you very much for having me. I feel honoured and privileged to be here amongst <laughs> and following your cultural luminaries. It's worth mentioning to our listeners that you are perhaps the most perfectly qualified person in the world to be chair of a major international literary festival because Caroline's arguably Britain's best known literary agent. She's been CEO of Peter's Fraser and Dunlop since 2007. Before that, she ran Vintage at Random House and Harper Press at Harper Collins. She's also chair of the BFI Trust, a trustee of Somerset House, fellow of the RSA and Vice President of the London Library. Her client list at Peters Fraser and Dunlop is ridiculous. We could spend a whole podcast just marvelling over all the big names that are on it. But miraculously, she's found time to come on our podcast. Now, the festival, in fact, started on Wednesday and it runs till next Sunday. The lineup is almost as impressive as your client list and includes Mark Carney, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. So there's something for the politician in me. And then David Hockney, among hundreds of other literary luminaries. I know last year you grew your audience hugely by going digital so effectively, but how's all this going to work this year with social distancing? Are lots of your guests coming to Hay? How big an audience do you expect to turn up? Well, I think, sadly, um, given the restrictions, this is going to be mostly virtual and a few people are turning up. We're lucky enough to have you and Charlotte coming in person, but mostly we're having to do this as a virtual and as a digital festival, which is also hugely exciting. I mean, this has been, this time last year, we didn't know whether Hay was going to even exist for our 34th festival. We were just about to build our site, which has over 350,000 people coming to it every year, Hay on Wyke coming to Hay on Wyke. And suddenly the whole thing was pulled. And our sponsors stayed with us, our friends, supporters and benefactors stayed with us. And we turned it into a virtual festival within two weeks. Um, and we had over 500,000 people uh, registered to come. We had that number actually attend, just about attend online from 74 different countries. And suddenly the power of virtual and the 
the way that you could get ideas and writers and thinkers out there to a much wider audience, it was as if somebody had suddenly sort of lifted the lifted the shades and showed us what was possible. So um, as you mentioned, we are international, we run festivals all over the world. And we repeated this formula um, in Spain, in Croatia, in Peru, in Brazil, in, um, in Cartagena. And sitting here now, we've had over 2 million people come to the Hay Festival in its digital form. So I think what what's just been so extraordinary for us and is just the power of culture, the power of ideas, the power to inspire, to entertain, to kind of give pleasure um, virtually is as alive and kicking as it is when you're actually there and live and watching people up in front of you. And it, it's been, it's been, it's been an extraordinary year. In a way, it's possibly been a huge advantage because I was looking at your incredible list of people coming. And one of them I noticed that, that is going to have a presence this year is Mario Vargas Llosa, you know, who, who to me is this sort of God. Presumably he's not attending in person. But I'm just wondering, you know, perhaps it's, it's made you even more ambitious about who you can invite. It has. And it's been it's been marvellous. People have come to Hay. I mean, the, when you were talking about Boris calling it Hay on Wi-Fi, Arthur Miller, when we asked Arthur Miller, said, "Hey, on rye, isn't that a sandwich?" He, um, everybody sort of, but but they but they turn up, you know. And and Clinton, when he came, he said, "Hey, is the Woodstock for the mind?" People come to Hay in Wales because it has this incredible story to it. They love to come. I mean, Hay itself is so beautiful. But when you try and you have to ask people, would they come to Arequipa in Peru? Or would they come to Segovia in Spain? Or would they come to us in Cartagena? Or would they come to um, Carretera in Mexico? It's not so easy to get the Nobel Prize winners, the leading writers, the leading filmmakers to come there. But what it has been easy to do is to say, would they give a digital talk? So Mario coming to Hay digitally is wonderful. Mario came to Arequipa in Peru live, and it's just wonderful to keep this community going, whether it's live or virtual. Can you tell us what you think are going to be the highlights of this year's Hay for you? I don't know where to put myself at Hay because there's always so much to see and to do. And I think what we're doing this year is reflecting a lot of what's happened in the last year or so. So for me, for instance, one of the great things about Hay is, yes, we bring all the, the great figureheads of, of literature, of politics, of culture, of art and so on. But also this year has been incredibly tough for debut novelists. Debut novelists have found it very difficult to find traction for their first novels. Um, there's been no bookshops to visit. There's been very little space for them to actually talk about it. So we're highlighting 10 debut novelists um, every day of the festival. We're covering themes. You know, we have, um, along with Mario Vargas Vosa, we're crossing borders with Michael Ignati of Wade Davis and Isabel Allende. Lem Sisse, one year on from George Floyd, is, is doing a three-part festival series to mark that, looking at issues of race. Laura Bates, who is a is a big, big festival supporter and fan, is doing a series on gender and feminism. We have fantastic literary names um, from across the board, whether it's Simon Armitage or Deborah Levy or Ali Smith or Rachel Cuss. We've got you know, some of the very best. We've got great stuff for kids. We have everyone from David Williams to Michael Mopogo to Cresta Cowell, um, Joe Wicks, all sorts of people coming for our children's. Um, and I still say coming because still we're coming to Hay. We have a festival of lectures. Um, we always do commission very, very big and important lectures. So we have Gordon Brown, as you said, Anne Applebaum, Mark Carney, 
Margaret, Margaret Macmillan, um, Gary Young, all talking about the issues of the day. We have on the creative sector, as you said, we've got David Hockney, we have Charles Samurai Smith, we have people coming to address the issues in culture and museum. And of course, hey wouldn't be hey without comedy. So we have Marcus Bridgestock, we have Frank Skinner, we have Tom Allen, we have all sorts of people coming to keep us amused as well as to inspire. Oh, it sounds absolutely fantastic. What's uh, Blair's coming, isn't he? Yes, he is. He is indeed. This year is 300 years since the first prime minister. So there's a lot to talk about when it comes to um, leadership and government and the future of democracy. And I think we are, you know, Tony Blair is one of them, you know, one of our longest serving and most successful uh, prime ministers. And it'll be fabulous to have him there, you know. I think Blair's one of the most interesting political thinkers around at the moment. So I'm, I'd be very much up for uh, going to see that. But I do think it's wonderful that you're highlighting the debut novelists. I think it's a great point to make that Hay is a fantastic platform for people to kind of break through and be recognised by uh, a wider audience. So I think that's going to be really exciting as well. As a literary agent, as you mentioned before, I, I have found so many great writers at Hay, academics who've come to talk about their subjects, um, you know, or to appear on panels and you sit there enthralled thinking, God, I wonder if there's a book in that. I mean, I do think uh, it's a great fun part of the job, as it were, to be able to say to somebody, have you got a book in you? So uh, you've now prompted another unfair question. Who, who, <laughs> who's the most exciting? Tell us an exciting story about discovering a great writer who we now all love that you may have stumbled across. There have been so many over the years, both in terms of fiction and science and non-fiction. Um, and quite often there is that there's, you know, you, you just you take an idea and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But it's certainly not just in fiction. There's just this there's just such a wealth of people. I feel greedy with excitement whenever I, I see the programme at Hay and think, ooh, that's an interesting idea. But we're excited because actually later in this podcast, we've got Tamina Annam coming on to talk about the startup wife. She is she is marvellous. We judged a, a prize together recently, a short story prize. She's She is one of my favourite writers too. So I'm very excited to, to be on the same podcast as her. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thanks, Caroline. Thank you. Bye. We're actually rather wary of two of this year's Hay Festival authors because they have a brilliant and stupendously successful podcast, Talk Art, where we get 10 downloads, they get a million. We feel far too threatened by their success, but we have decided to invite them on, partly because they're not here to talk about their podcast, but about their book, which is also called Talk Art. I am, of course, talking about the actor Russell Tovey and the singer-songwriter Rob Rob Demant. Russell became known for playing the werewolf George Sands in the BBC's supernatural drama Being Human, and the pair met, introduced by the artist Tracy Emin, more than 10 years ago, when Russell had starred in the film of The History Boys, and Rob was in the electro-pop band Tempo Sharp and had just released his debut album. They discovered they shared a passion for contemporary art. They became firm friends immediately, and 10 years later, the podcast Talk Art was born. And now the book. They're here to tell us all about it. Good morning, Russell and Rob. Good morning, Ed. Good morning. Hi, Ed. I presume you pronounced your surname wrong, Rob, didn't I? It's yes, like, it's very, di very diament. Wrong. But actually, diament. yeah, it's like, yeah, whatever. It's all good. I, I loved the way you said it. 
I love the way <laughs> you relaxed. said George Sands, and it's Sands. It's more basic, <laughs> but you made it sound I was trying so to be flourished. sophisticated. Very, <laughs> very, very theatrical. It was Beautiful. like a thespian moment there. I liked yeah. it. <laughs> well, good morning, both of you. And we're absolutely thrilled to have two such successful podcasts on our podcast. But we are here to talk about your book. It's pretty fab. It's hot pink. Elton John and David Furnish have said it's joyous and passionate and that they wholeheartedly recommend it. And it's packed with illustrations and paintings and claims to be everything you wanted to know about contemporary art, but were afraid to ask. So I suppose my first question is, why do you think people are afraid to ask about contemporary art? I think people are, are threatened by it or, or scared of it or unaware that it's for them. So I know for myself, the reason we set up the podcast is because me and Rob have this shorthand for art. We completely love art. It's something that makes our lives so much better. It enriches everything. But for us getting into the art world, I remember going into galleries and opening a door and just sort of going, hi, can I come in? They'd be like, yeah. I'd be like, oh, are you sure? <laughs> like apologising for being in there. Didn't want to take up too much time. Didn't know what I was supposed to do and leave because it does feel intimidating. So what we did with the podcast is we wanted to create this kind of language, this dialogue with other people that was more gossipy and fun than reverential and academic because we're geeks, we're not experts. And all we want to do is create a platform where we can be geeks and talk to people about stuff that we love. Yeah. And also, I, th I think there's a big kind of fear of being shamed or a kind of a fear of embarrassment. You know, the idea that that you might not know as much as someone that knows everything there is to know about art. And I've been at dinner parties where literally I'll say that I now because I now work in a gallery, um, Carl Friedman Gallery in Margate. And I often sit at dinner and I'm like, oh, I work in a gallery. And then people just literally end the conversation because I think they fear that somehow, <laughs> somehow we're kind of like intellectually superior. But the truth is, like, I got into art because of passion and, you know, through like, like trauma in a way like as, as a way of like healing and beginning to understand your experience as a human being and I think on a human level we all have this need and desire to create whether we are artists ourselves which I'm not I mean I made music but I literally stopped making art at the age of 10 or 11 I didn't do any GCSE or anything so for me art was always this kind of otherworldly thing that only magical people did you know and um and it's that passion that we have for art which is what we're trying to get everyone else into and I think you've got enormous respect and admiration for artists that's shines through in the book in fact you say they're gods to you Russell in terms of his getting to know Tracy Emin treats it almost like you know somebody standing at the stage door waiting to meet a famous actor the sort of hesitancy and then having to get drunk before you can strike up a conversation with her uh, but you did eventually uh, you met through Tracy Emin tell, tell you how you both met her yeah no Trace, Tracy's an absolute hero for us and, and become uh, a really good friend of both of ours and a massive friend of Talkar she's been on the podcast twice she's contributed images she's actually done if you anybody gets the book if you if you open the first page and take the sleeve off. She's actually written talk art in her handwriting. My parents bought me a, uh, an edition of hers for my 21st after I met her on um, the Queen's Jubilee. She was sweeping up Fournier Street where her house was. And she, I, I, I met her then. And then when I did the History Boys, it was a South Bank show awards and she was sat on the table next to me. And I remember thinking, right, I'm going to get drunk with Tracy Emin. I'm going to have a glass <laughs> with Tracy Emin. And I sort of segued over there throughout the night. And then we ended up becoming like, 
I ended up escorting her to a few parties. And then the next morning she texted me and said, um, that was really fun pokey. She called me pokey because my ears and said, let's, let's hang again. And I remember just being like, this is like amazing. <laughs> in my teen years, my brother died um, from the club drug ecstasy in a nightclub in 1994. And my response to that was obviously I sort of delved into music initially as a way of kind of like healing through that grief. And then one day I found a book about the story of Frida Kahlo's life. And I didn't actually see her paintings because back in the 90s her art actually wasn't that well published in the UK and I, I read all about her life and then got really into this idea of somehow surviving through being creative and that idea that you can do something positive with your life even if you've experienced bad things and then when I heard about Tracy's work in the kind of mid 90s maybe like 96 97 I was like oh my god like she's the equivalent in a way of what Frida Kahlo meant to me but she's here and she's alive so it was so exciting to me and I always found her bed to be the most kind of romantic and kind of I don't know extraordinary work about about human existence and about you know life on all levels because you're born in a bed you die in a bed you know you you procreate in bed like it's it's the place that we all spend so much of our lives but often we don't even think about and I found it also linked to the kind of history of painting so I always took her very very seriously and one of the first things I did was we uh, Russell and I both bought editions and then eventually we started to save up money and pay in installments to buy unique works and Russ spent his first check for from um, the History Boys, the uh, the film he made with Alan Bennett, he spent the first like royalties check or whatever on a Tracy Emin drawing. My and full I'd fee, my fee up... for the movie. Your fee for the movie, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Um, and then I, I started saving up money and was paying in installments for an equivalent unique drawing. And I'd funnily enough looked at the one that he bought and he'd looked at the one that I bought. So when we met, we found out we both bought these drawings and we were like, no, you got the other one. And it <laughs> but was we like were we kind of rivals though, because Tracy, like I was always told, oh, there's your Tracy's youngest collector. And he was always told that. And then there was a retrospective in Edinburgh. <laughs> and I remember being there and this woman came up to me, she went, oh, you're Tracy's youngest collector. And I was like, yes, yes, I am. And she went, oh, so you've, you've loaned this work to the show. I'm like, no. She went, is that not yours? You're her youngest collector. No, I, I'm loaned any words. <laughs> Who's that? And I was suddenly like, who is this other person? What? I'm the youngest one. So she sat us next to each other. So I think instantly we were both like, oh, so who are you then? And then within like <laughs> minutes, it was like, oh my God, we're completely the same. And we sort of bonded over her drawing titles, which at the time weren't even that well published. I mean, she has since made a book of a thousand of her drawings because it's a big part of her practice. But I remember meeting her for the first time on the South Bank in about 2006 or something. It was just before the Venice Biennale. And I walked up to her because White Cuba told me she'd be there. And I said, oh, hi, I've just bought a drawing of yours. And she was with Ronnie Wood and a few other celebrities. And she said, oh, come with us. You know, I'm going to get you a front row seat to her reading. And she she was immediately so generous, so open, so unpretentious. And I realized very quickly what a generous, incredible human being she was. And honestly, it's transformed my life getting to meet her because I've met Russ, who's now become my best friend. And we've done this podcast together and book. You're very good together. You know when to stop and start each other's sentences. I met Tracy Emin at a dinner when, um, weirdly, she agreed to come to a Tory fundraising dinner. I think most of the people there did not realize it was a Tory fundraising dinner. And I walked in and I saw my nameplate next to her nameplate. And I thought, I can't face this. Because all I knew about Tracy Emin was the kind of Turner Prize thing. So I moved my place. And then I thought, this is ridiculous. You're a complete <laughs> pussy. And I put my place name back next to her and I sat down. And I thought, what's going to happen? And she sat down, she handed me a letter and I opened it and it said, Tax breaks for artists. <laughs> it was a two-page thesis on the tax treatment of visual artists. I think what's really 
brilliant about this book is it's it's completely accessible and practical on all sorts of levels and it's completely designed to blast through all that gobbledygook that so often surrounds contemporary art. And the, the great American art critic, Jerry Saltz, says that in his foreword to your book. So it's very much a beginner's guide. What I really like about it is that it's driven by your belief that art is really necessary and important. What I think as humanity, art is what we leave behind. Art is what we judge our past ancestors about and what the future generations are going to judge us about in this moment and to be told that it's superfluous and to be educated in it isn't as important as other subjects and let's cut it by 50 percent is offensive on every level because the only way you can really understand who your fellow man is is through its art and it's not superfluous it's necessary it's vital it's what it is to be alive and also, I think artists are often the first people to kind of highlight and recognise what's going on in society, even quicker than politics sometimes. And I think I think when we're all, part, you know, dead and long gone, you know, you don't always remember every single name of every politician. You don't remember, I don't know, the name of a TV presenter, but you will remember the painting and you will remember mm. those, you know, the people in those paintings. And I think art can help us to improve ourselves. It's almost like a kind of therapy or something. You can kind of work out... All, all your good sides, your bad sides, yeah. you know, through looking at art. And then it's that as well, but then it's also fun. You know, so this sounds like quite heavy and reverential, which we're kind of we're trying to fight, fight against a bit. But in reality, the reasons we love it is because it's so much fun. I get like adrenaline dopamine hits when I go to a, a museum show or a gallery show of an artist that I love or an artist that's a new discovery. If an artist says to me, do you want to come and do a studio visit? Oh, my God. Before I walk in there, I get the shakes. I get so excited by it. And that's what we're just trying to promote with this is that the excitement and the the energy that you can get from from enjoying art. Fundamentally, the people who don't like contemporary art think, they think about art as effort. So they look at a Titian and they say, that bloke can draw and paint. He made a real effort here. And they look at Tracy's unmade bed and said, well, I can leave my bed unmade. Why can I sell that for, <laughs> you know, a million quid? If you, if you go to a life drawing class and there's a model there and there could be 50 people stood around drawing that model, every single person's interpretation of the model will be completely unique to them, like a fingerprint. When you're seeing an artist's work and you're like, I could do that, why is it only like two lines on there? It's because the artist has decided that that is enough for them. Because it's incredibly exposing as an artist, because you're it's like writing, it's bearing your soul. As an actor, I get to hide behind lines. I get to hide behind, you know, it's the director's fault, or oh, the writing wasn't very good, my fellow actors weren't great, that's why it didn't work. Whereas an artist is like, this is me. This this is all of me coming out. There you go. What do you think of that? And everyone's like, nah, don't like it. We understand movies. We understand listening to music. We understand reading a book. But taking in visual arts or the arts in general, you have to work a little bit harder. But the rewards are so much more when you do get it. I just want to ask very quickly, you must both be absolutely furious about this thing of art no longer being mandatory to be taught in schools. Every single thing in our lives is affected by art. Everything you look at, the street signs, the road maps, everything, the under, underground map. You know what I mean? It's like every single thing is there by someone artisanal along the route has been involved in that. So be, to be told, oh, it doesn't really matter anymore, is offensive. Yeah, and art is who we are. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the fabric of our very being in a way. And I, I think it's, 
it's just shocking that, that they would take it out of the school curriculum. I mean, it's just madness. And also, what about expressing ourselves? You know, when, especially when you're a teenager, like, you know, when you're going through all this stuff and you're going through a big change in your life and like you're struggling with, you know, working out who you are, you need to express yourself. You need to paint and draw and make music and, and be supported in that. Also, if you think about on an export level, you know, like the British culture, in film, music, art, it's huge. It's a massive income stream. Oh, I see. Yeah, like, exactly. to, to, to not encourage that for the future is responsible for our, for you know for the country's well-being. I think. If you want, if you want to see the future, you follow the artists. Thank you both so much. The book is called Talk Art, and it's, and it's fabulous. Pink. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's actually it's magenta, and it's the colour that Michael Craig Martin, Sir Michael Craig Martin, who was our first ever artist guest on the Talk Art podcast, he actually talks about that colour oh, in that lovely. episode, and we thought it would be a really nice thing, sort of yeah, quite circular. And we love Michael Craig Martin; he's brilliant. And don't you have a Michael Craig Martin there, Ed? Yes, he's on my wall. Love glove. Which you can't see. Oh, love here. glove. Oh, love glove. Go. Love that print. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Really art. enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. You'll be able to catch Robin Russell in conversation with Olivia Lang at Hay on Tuesday, the 1st of June at 1pm. Our next guest, who is also going to Hay, is Bangladeshi-born Tamima Anam, whom we mentioned earlier. Tamima has already been shortlisted for and won several awards for her trilogy about a family during the Bangladesh War of Independence. But her new book, The Startup Wife, is a complete departure because she's drawn inspiration from her working life. Tamima is not only a short story writer and novelist, but also a Harvard-educated anthropologist and an executive director of Roly, a music technology startup. And it's the world of startups that are the inspiration for this new novel. She's here to tell us all about it. Good morning, Tamima. Good morning. It's great to be here. Oh, good morning, Tamima. It's lovely to have you with us. Now, I was very excited to receive the proof copy of this book, and I finished it at the weekend and loved it. Now, I'm going to get you to tell our listeners about the plot, but what blew me away was all your amazing ideas and your very prescient imagination about the way our society is going. But this is so much more than just a futuristic look at our society. It's a love story, a power struggle between men and women, and a really good look at how women tend to allow themselves to be pushed aside in the workplace. Don't I know it? So start by telling our listeners the premise for the novel. Thank you, Charlotte. And you really described it better than I can. The novel is about uh, a young Bangladeshi American woman called Asha Ray. She's a brilliant computer coder and she comes up with an algorithm um, and creates a new social media platform. And the story is really about how she starts this tech company with her husband and her best friend. And basically how, even though it was her idea and she's really the force behind it, this man, her husband, becomes the sort of figurehead and ultimately almost like a cult leader. And it's really about not only that the man in the story ends up having all the power, but that she basically hands it over to him. She creates an algorithm that essentially makes people worship her husband. Um, <laughs> so there's a real irony there, but it is also a love story. And it's about, you know, it's about the world of love and work and how they mix together, sometimes to great effect and sometimes with some big challenges. I'm absolutely fascinated by this. I was responsible for tech as culture minister. I've also visited Roly. It's very exciting. In fact, long overdue that a startup is providing such fertile ground for a novel like this. At the centre of the story is Asha, uh, the protagonist's marriage to Cyrus, which cracks under the pressure of Cyrus being hailed as the new messiah. I have to say that sounds very familiar in the world of tech and startups. <laughs> so I'm sure I'm not alone in wanting to ask 
dare I say it, how autobiographical. <laughs> <laughs> they were all dying to ask. Or is it simply <laughs> what you've observed about men changing as they become tech gurus? Well, I'll tell you something. I was a little bit nervous when I showed my husband the first draft of the book. But luckily, he has a great sense of humor and took it in his stride. And he said, well, you did create a very handsome, very charismatic hero. And I'll take that, you know, I'll say that's based on me. Obviously the parts of the story where the relationship starts to sort of be strained under the pressure of success and the ways in which Cyrus becomes quite egotistical. I mean, all those I of course made up and my husband is nothing like that. But do you work with him? I mean, are, are you in, in business together at Rowley? Yes, absolutely. Um, oh God. So <laughs> yes. I have been on the board of this company for the last 10 years, and I've also worked there. I've helped recruit some of the top execs and worked sort of, you know, on branding and other aspects of the more sort of narrative side of the business. And it's been really fascinating. I mean, I would say that on the one hand, blurring work and life has been really energizing for us. It's given us something to relate about that is beyond the children and the domestic. So that's been very exciting, but it's also been very challenging. I mean, you know, talk about not being able to leave work at the office. It's just everywhere. Um, we can't get rid of it. We talk about the business as our first child. So really, I would say it's a mixed bag. Well, one of the bits I really loved about it was was quite early on when, when you've got a scene where all the new startups are coming in to pitch for funding. And the idea seems so absurd, yet entirely plausible given how much our own world has changed. And I'm thinking about the pitch from the startup, No Touch, which imagines a world in which you have to find ways of greeting each other without touching. Um, so I'm just wondering how much you actually wrote before the pandemic, because it's in parts, it's almost sort of spookily clairvoyant. Well, thank you for saying that. Uh, it's a great question. The, the part of the, of the story, so essentially... Um, when Cyrus and Asha start their company, they're invited to what's called a tech incubator. And these are real places, Ed, I'm sure you're familiar with them, where people who have good ideas kind of come together and they get nurtured so they can launch their companies. And the premise of this particular incubator, which is called Utopia, is that it's uh, companies that are going to protect against the apocalypse. So they're basically apocalypse preppers. And I wrote that part of the story before the pandemic hit. And when the pandemic hit, I thought, gosh, there are these characters who are preparing for the apocalypse. And here's a real life apocalypse. I can't leave that out of the story. Um, and so when I was doing the rewrites, just the very ending of the book is the very beginning of our real life apocalyptic pandemic. Of course, we've done another novelist who's written a novel about prepping for the pandemic. But Charlotte may mock the incredible virtuosity of the tech world. But there is actually, there is actually a company called Ultraleap in Bristol, which has invented sound wave technology, which means you don't have to touch anything. And uh, in theory, they'll put it in cars. So you'll be able to sort of tune the radio while you're driving by waving your hand in the air. I mean, we could we could brain so we could have a tech incubator right here. <laughs> well, well, that was one of the most joyful and fun things about writing this book was coming up with all the different companies that were going to be part of Utopia. So there's a very crazy kind of vegan activist um, who's developed a tick that if it bites you, you become vegetarian, you become very allergic to meat. And he thinks this is a way of saving the planet. Oh, um, there's idea. all kinds of, yeah, well, actually this tick actually exists. It's <laughs> called the Lone Star Tick. Um, so yeah, this was, it was really fun for me to come up with all the ideas of all the startups and I, I got slightly carried away with it. There is a serious point here, which is the kind of 
it behind the startup wife, which it is this whole kind of tech bro culture is pretty nauseating. I mean, it's full of uh, relatively young men who think, uh, you know, who, who raise uh, enormous sums of money and then think that they sort of rule the world. And it is also a very male dominated culture. We still lack a lot of female founders. It's much harder for women to raise money and that kind of thing. Absolutely. Ed, you make a really good point. And I think what's really ironic is that tech, the tech world is all about disrupt. You know, we're going to disrupt everything from the way you order your pizza to the way you drive and your laundry and your life is going to be so much easier. And yet the basic structures of power are not disrupted. We're still elevating essentially young white men to great positions of power and giving them control over our lives. We work. Um, that was a man-wife team, wasn't it, that completely collapsed under pressure? It's. I think these partnerships are so interesting and Bill and Melinda Gates breaking up recently. And it's. I think these are some of, you know, there are, there's a lot of human drama behind every tech company, I think. And even if, a, if, even if the woman is prominently part of the business or not, I think there, there's a lot, there are a lot of stories that are happening under the surface that we don't read about in the papers. That one with WeWork and Adam Newman was a particularly dramatic one. Asha, the main character, she's a coder. And I'm wondering, you know, how many women actually are taught how to code? Do you think there's a sort of disparity at an educational and university level that far more men go into coding than women? I think it is changing, but certainly not fast enough. And, you know, they talk, and Ed, I'm sure you, you, you're familiar with, with this, you know, they talk about the tech ecosystem and everywhere from young girls being discouraged or somehow not encouraged to, to join the sciences, all the way up to the female founders who do and don't get funded by VCs and the VCs themselves. I think the whole the whole world is is geared towards, you know, having um, white male founders. And that's really got to change. The power structure that exists between me and Charlotte is interesting because she got sent a copy of your book and I didn't. And I just <laughs> well, wonder, I wonder what that says about the way that it's Charlotte. It's because is in... I said women first, you know, the first printing should only go to women. I'm trying to do my own little affirmative action here. Also, I think I'm quite sexist, though, because I always think that, that women read far more novels than men. You know, most men I know don't really like fiction very much. They'd much, well, actually, that's not true, but, but a lot of them much prefer to read you know Andrew Roberts enormous tome on whoever it is <laughs> then to me my... I think ending the podcast on Andrew Roberts's enormous tome is, is this <laughs> wrap things up but I look forward to buying a copy of your book Tamima yeah see you see you at hey yeah we Absolutely. that's really exciting I look forward to it. see you at hey this was so fun thank you so much well I hugely enjoyed Tamima's book. It's called The Startup Wife, and she's going to be talking about it at Hay in conversation with Georgina Godwin on the same day as us. That's this Thursday at 3pm, so let's hope we might bump into her if she's there. But that's all we've got time for this week. Just to remind you that our great British brands panel at Hay is on Thursday at 5. Ed will be chairing and a, a discussion on how brands can help support and save our arts and culture. On the panel will be Neil Mendoza, of course the Government Commissioner for Cultural Recovery and Renewal, Iwona Blaswick from the Whitechapel Gallery, Emma Rickett from Rolls-Royce who will be talking about their arts programme and Nina Plyman from Cultural Comms. So do tune into that to see Ed and our fabulous panel in action. You know that our website address is now country townhouse.co.uk where you'll also find our sister podcast house guest with carol annette for all lovers of interior design this week she talked to mark boddington of the famous 
brewing family, now the brains behind the super high-end silver lining furniture. If you want every piece of furniture to look like a piece of art, silver lining is for you. You can also tune into our Great British Brands podcast with host Michael Heyman and just add a Splash newsletter for both our weekly Country and Townhouse newsletter and our new Great British Brands June newsletter, which is essential reading as the ultimate guide to the summer season and everything that goes with it from dressing up to unmissable events, starting, of course, with Hay. Hope you tune in on Thursday and we'll be back again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye.